0: I'm with Darren Burgess. He's an exercise scientist by training and he has tremendous experience in two football codes. He most recently worked with the Australian Socceroos before heading to Liverpool Football Club where he's the head of sports science. He has a PhD in sports science where he looked at the role of GPS in teams and he's very conscious of how to develop talent and how to monitor players so that their injuries don't develop over a season, Darren. Thanks for joining this BJSM podcast.
1: Not a problem, Karim. Absolute pleasure.
0: Now you had an interesting season at Liverpool with success in the Carling Cup, and uh, how is it working in English Premier League compared to working in the Australian Professional Australian Rules Football League?
1: It's, uh, I guess, the main difference is is the the sheer volume of games that you, you're exposed to. In the Premier League, uh, for the last two seasons, Liverpool have played over 55 games. You generally only have uh, anywhere between three and and five or six days uh, to prepare in the in the Premier League. If we get a six day break, we're absolutely delighted in between games. Whereas in the AFL, I used to panic when we had a six day break in between games because I thought there wasn't enough time to recover the players. So uh, that, that's that's probably the main difference.
0: And so let's go down that path straight away. As a strength and conditioning coach working with the sports medicine team and we'll get to the clinical team later, what are those differences when you're working on this three-day turnaround rather than a six-day turnaround?
1: We use a number of monitoring tools to try and assess how well the players have recovered and how well prepared they are for for the next game. And and so you're just making judgments on how much training and the volume of training that they're able to do. Uh, the practicalities are with the, with the footballers that I'm working with at the moment They, uh, uh, it's more or less recover in between games and see if you can do some light training whereas the AFL players it's how much training you can do in between games
0: and let's get to the nitty-gritty of how you do that so without naming names if we consider a famous Liverpool player who's played most of the game how do you decide whether that player will be ready in three days to make these decisions you just outlined
1: well uh over the top of all of this the manager will decide mainly. So, um if if it's a really famous player and it's a really important game then they're probably gonna play. Um what what we can sort of add is information on that. So you generally try and build up a a, a profile of that player. So there there are a number of ways we can do this. We can we can look at their blood, creatinine kinase levels and if they are over and above a, a, a certain percentage or standard deviation Above their normal match day response then then that might prompt you to to uh, use certain recovery techniques or or might even prompt you to say that the the player is uh, under a little bit too much stress to to be available for the game. Um, you might look at other objective values such as uh, neuromuscular fatigue in terms of uh, jump scores you know, which we've looked at in the past. We use heart rate variability and have a look at how well they've They've recovered from both a you know, a parasympathetic and sympathetic response. Subjectively, obviously, you're looking at sleep patterns and, and things like that, which will not necessarily uh, influence whether they play or not, but might influence their training loads. We look at past history, how successful they've been. We, we, we take a detailed look at how well they their output is. Um, if they're playing two day, two games in three days, for instance, we'll look at if they've done that in the past and... And their pro zone match figures from that which is just their their work output during the game distances covered and sprints and things like that and then we'll provide the manager with all of that information and and then um hopefully make a team decision
0: wow you do all that for every player for every game
1: every player every game Um, we'll have that detail of information on players over the last couple of years and, and you know if you're lucky enough to be at a club for a longer period of time then you might have it for a bit longer um, but, but we've got a pretty good, under, I'd like to think anyway we've got a pretty good understanding of, of how each player responds so that when there is an outlier and that's essentially their job is looking for outliers when there is an outlier you can identify it and hopefully act upon it
0: And I know you're going into your third year at Liverpool so... You um, have this background information now on quite a few of the players.
1: We do. uh, I guess the the interesting and and probably the unique situation at Liverpool is we've had three managers in that time and each manager has brought with him uh, a different style of training. So the players were exposed to a completely different set of stimuli. So we had to adjust some of our values based on that and obviously we've now had... uh, five weeks of brendan rogers and and so he brings another different training style, so the response to the player is a little bit different but then once once we get a profile of each player we under the different styles, then we can make decisions on that but but we certainly have uh, comprehensive information over the two years
0: and And Darren, that takes us uh, to a place where you can share your vast experience because you've worked with coaches and managers and high performance. Managers, all these different parts of elite sports medicine, you've worked as a sports scientist with them both in Australia, in Australian rules football and with the Australian national team in soccer, if we call it that, and as you say, now in English Premier League. So what advice do you have to emerging sports scientists and emerging clinicians who are hoping to work in this, if we call it rarefied atmosphere, Um, but it's not straightforward, is it? What advice do you have?
1: in terms of advice i guess you just have to be very flexible and you have to have to adapt to the environment when i left university which is a long time ago i had some set ideas and and every time i read a new research paper i i think yep i want to employ that in in my scenario but you just can't particularly in the current environment within the sports science literature um, and within the strength and conditioning literature there's a bunch of Articles that might say, you know, in order to improve strength, you need to do this certain um, training in the gym or on the pitch. And in order to, to prevent uh, hamstring injuries, for instance, uh, you need to do a certain volume of eccentric training in order to prevent hamstring injuries in footballers. And, and that's fantastic, and, and a lot of the research is sound and good. But to apply that to a team that's playing twice a week, travelling in and out of Europe, to try and fit in eccentric hamstring exercise within that schedule, um, it's pretty tough to do. That, that's probably the most important thing I've learned is to be adaptable to your environment and try and apply those principles in, in a practical way.
0: Okay, and let's ask one of the hard questions because we can do that on DJSTM <laughs> Podcasts. There can be the tension in some clubs and some settings between the strength and conditioning coach in terms of rehabilitating a player after an injury and a clinician managing the injury, as it were. How do you you resolve those um, conflicts in some settings and uh, what do you suggest is a good way of doing that?
1: It's true. I guess one of the things that surprised me, with with my role with Socceroos, I was pretty fortunate in that... um, uh, we played a lot of games overseas. Australia tends to have to travel everywhere to play against opponents. And and so uh, the coach that I had at the time allowed me to, to go and spend a fair bit of time uh, looking at other clubs. So most of the major uh, soccer clubs or football clubs around the world I've been lucky enough to see. And, and it, that did surprise me that there was that much tension in between the departments in, in uh, the various clubs uh, within our department. We have a pretty simple way. You know, we we meet daily to talk about each player, and then the treating um, clinician will outline the guidelines um, that that player is is to rehabilitate within, and then from there, the the uh, um, specialist rehabilitation person that we have, which is which is strength and conditioning trained, I must say, um, will take the the player out onto the field under the supervision of the treating clinician and perform the football specific activities required um, within those guidelines so uh, it's discussed as a group uh, even though there's one treating clinician you know you'd like to think that everybody has an input and and it's a a, to be honest with you it's a fairly simple way of of going about it and um, that's how we try and uh, try and overcome any any differences in backgrounds and, and things like that and and we, we see it, uh, we, look we're by no means perfect and don't have the perfect model but there's some very heated debates that go on but we see that as a good thing you know, and hopefully we come to a resolution and everybody falls in behind that
0: I think wearing my clinician hat it's fair to say that certainly in undergraduate medicine doctors aren't trained in knowing when someone can return to play and My physio colleagues have taught me a lot over the years in this, but I think there are lessons to be learned both from conditioning folks and from clinicians working together to understand this. Darren, my question is, what would you say for a clinician wanting to know more and be better at knowing when a player is ready to return to sport? What can a clinician learn from strength and conditioning experience and knowledge that strength and conditioning folks have?
1: The the sports scientists, strength and conditioners, have a, have a really good handle on what specific, and, and GPS has helped this, but what specific loads the player is gonna be subjected to both in games and training. Being able to monitor those loads closely, you're able to, to advise the, the physicians and uh, the physios and, and the clinicians as to, okay, we need to do a little bit more high speed running, a little bit less, a little bit uh, more change of direction because in a game, you know this player will need to do this this player will need to you know makes uh 30 high speed accelerations in a game and and so i think we can really help in in making that player game ready before they come into training uh as well as muscle ready if, if you know what i mean rehabilitating the muscle and rehabilitating the the physiology so that the player can make a fairly seamless transition back into first team training and match play i think that's where the combination of physio, doctor and strength and conditioning comes into play.
0: And clearly you see these players every day which is different to an office consult where someone might see a patient once a week or something like that. So let's get into this quantification, you made the point that you can quantify the loads both that are expected and that are being done in training. So. Tell us to start with about Prozone because not everyone will be familiar with that and then tell us about what GPS can do just as a description and then we'll talk about how they're used so what about an outline of Prozone and an outline of GPS?
1: Prozone is is a a stadium-based camera player tracking system which is a mouthful but it basically means that that every move that a a player makes during a football match is is tracked by uh, anywhere up to eight cameras so we know exactly how many changes of direction how many accelerations decelerations what speed those accelerations were made at every sprint whether they started from a standing start or a jog so it's it's very detailed it's measured at 25 hertz so 25 measurements per second so you you can really drill down and and uh and get very detailed information about each player gps does exactly the same thing it's just a portable device worn uh, typically between the shoulder blades um, in a in a kind of sports bra that players wear in training and each one of our players wears it every day and you get the same level of information the only difference is at the moment the the, the current models of GPS are tracking at about 10 to 15 hertz with 10 to 15 measurements a second so they're not quite as i guess accurate as a stadium based uh, camera system which is Prozone and uh, and Misco is the other model Obviously, in training, we also use heart rate monitors, so uh, we can we can get both the output, which is the uh, the distances and things that I spoke about earlier, and and the cost of that output in terms of the heart rate.
0: And I'm starting to understand why you need the four interns or so at the club <laughs> to analyse all these data. And exactly uh,
1: right, and they know, love every minute of it.
0: <laughs> that's great. And I know you did PhD in GPS and using these ways of monitoring players for performance and injury, I believe. So let's dip into that, Darren. Have you got a story or an example of how this has been used successfully, for example, again, without giving away any secrets of individuals, but can you take us through like a case or a story of how this has been used in contrast to in the 90s and 80s when these things weren't available?
1: I guess one of the main findings from my PhD, one of the studies that I did as part of that was... Comparing draft choices by clubs, and this is in the AFL, to five-year career success in the AFL, so uh, every player gets a comprehensive medical. We looked at the draft tests that are very frequently used, and that's typically speed, agility, uh, skin folds, jumping profiles of players. and it, And what what we thought was that if you actually could profile these young players during games, so give them GPS and track their movements in the ultimate fitness test, which is a game, uh, that would give you a better idea of how well the players, these under-18 players, would tolerate uh, AFL loads, so senior, senior match play loads. And what we found is that the, the draft tests were uh, essentially not predicting any career success at all and the match high speed running that the players were able to do when they were 17 and 18 uh, gave you a great prediction of how successful those players would be in their first five years of their career uh, and we'll, we'll do that after 10 years and 15 years but we're up to five years at the moment. So without the GPS information of players during games you, you would have no idea and you're still relying on traditional methods of of talent identification uh, in terms of how we might use it at the moment uh, if you have a midfielder for instance seemingly the central midfielders in football don't cover as much distance as say outside left and right fullbacks or or left and right wingers because they're running up and down and and so people would traditionally think that the central midfielders especially the defensive midfielders don't need to cover as much distance but what we're seeing now is that the number of accelerations and decelerations that are able to be picked up by by GP, the current model GPSs show that these guys are making so many more accelerations and decelerations, which, as as we know, uh, structurally, uh, particularly on the hamstrings and, and groin area, um, the eccentric loads going through there are, are, are quite significant. So we now know, through being able to quantify matches using GPS. that that these guys need specific recovery and specific training on those areas. Previously, you'd have a look at the wingers going up and down the wing all day and say, wow, they're doing a lot of running, but but the demand on the body isn't quite as high in terms of straight-line high-speed running as much as it might be for essential midfielder stopping and turning and twisting and changing direction all the time and making more tackles and more contact. So that's one of the areas that we've been able to uh, individualise recovery uh, from those particular players because they're going through that, such extreme loads in terms of excels and D cells in, in a game.
0: And so that makes me think, um, how many, how long do you spend after a game analysing these uh, data yourself before being able to customise the next day's training or recovery for all those players? How long does that take you?
1: From a pro zone we get the the information within 24 hours normally around that 24 hour period and then you, you export them into your own sort of custom databases, which, which hopefully will filter out those outliers. You know, and you might have a traffic light system or, or a dashboard system where you can quickly look at players within their normal ranges. Then you can you you might start to look at it. But I, I would say that I would spend a couple of hours each day looking at either training or, or match information.
0: And so if someone has got a traffic light feedback saying they've done too much, let's say, at the upper end um, in a game, how does that affect your training plan for them?
1: The matches are always sort of sacrosanct, and you rarely try and influence matches, particularly Premier League matches. But you you could perhaps influence the training that they might do and modify the training, take them out of various drills or, or remove them from training altogether and just give them more recovery. Uh, that's a conversation that you have amongst your sports science and sports medicine staff, and then and then take that to uh, to the manager.
0: My understanding is that if they are low on these measures, they're not doing enough. That flags some action as well.
1: Absolutely, and, and that's one of the things that I'm completely convinced about is that that most players, particularly Premier League players, who are who have adapted to this level of training and this level of match play, if they're actually not exposed to that level of match play, they become under-trained and they're at as much risk of an injury as they might be if they're over-trained. So that's that's a great point.
0: And so what sort of practical things would you give them to give them more load in training?
1: Well, I guess there are two schools of thoughts. You could give them more load in terms of uh, extra sort of straight line, non-ball-related conditioning, or you could give them more load in, in terms of more football specific training that they might do and that, I guess that's the, the preference of the sports scientist or strength and conditioning coach and the preference of the manager.
0: And Darren you've touched a few times on you know increasing players recovery and what are the sort of top three or four things for recovery because it's a magic word but there are a lot of ways and theories as to recovering so what's your practical suggestion for clinicians and sports scientists who are listening who are you know, are they doing? How do they know if they're doing the best type of recovery specifics?
1: It's a, that's a hard one to gauge. There's so much uh, research out about about recovery. Probably the most interesting research that's come out uh, only recently is is that player preference plays a massive part in recovery. Um, and that's not to say that you 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 know if a player doesn't like ice bars, for instance, um, you shouldn't put them in there, but but I don't think it's a one size fits all approach, and I think there's different types of recovery there's you know structural recovery and there's neural recovery and things like that.
0: What do you mean by structural recovery and neural recovery?
1: So uh, structural recovery might be if if a player for instance, has gone through a lot of uh, eccentric load in their in their hamstrings and adductors through a lot of changes of direction and things like that, then they might need a bit more structural recovery than than somebody who's gone through a large number of high-speed efforts, because that that certainly taxes the neural system more than it might. Uh, it certainly does tax the structural system, but there might be a, a, a different type of recovery that you apply there. And you know, some of the research will, might tell you that ice baths are better for the neuromuscular system, and and uh, massage might be better for the structural system. Yeah, I know there's there's certainly some people that go into that much detail about their recovery. I probably take a more holistic approach and uh, for me, nutrition and sleep play a massive part in recovery and I think you're probably 60 to 70% there if you can try and get players on a a really good night's sleep and and get adequate protein, electrolyte and and carbohydrate into them, particularly in the first couple of hours of of the game. And then uh, I'm a big believer in active recovery uh, at some point um, immediately after the game, and then at some point within the next 24 hours. Um, so, whether that's uh, uh, hydrotherapy or, or on a bike or, or uh, just a jog and, and uh, some dynamic flexibility work, that's, that tends to be my preference um, with recovery. But I, I do think you can sort of compartmentalise it a little bit as well.
0: And Darren, we're getting towards the end. I know you have to go, but uh, hydration, what's your approach to hydration? It's quite controversial after the BMJ article on sports drinks. And uh, what's your position?
1: Well, I think hydration certainly plays a role. I think that's fairly indisputable. Uh, How much of a role is probably debatable. And I think with, with my particular sport at the moment, For match performance, I think you'd have to be fairly well dehydrated for that performance to be affected. I'm yet to see really substantial weight loss, and and with the Socceroos, we we trained in Dubai, we played in some of the most extreme conditions you could possibly be exposed to, and and we used a fairly sensible approach to hydration where we would make sure uh, we had players at a certain level of hydration without going overboard and i think you can individualize it and we certainly sweat patch test our players to see the guys that are really heavy sweaters and and sweat a really heavy percentage of electrolytes however um we certainly don't go overboard and and uh, i've gone away from daily usg or osmo checking and to more random checking just to make sure the players are on top of it and, and more generalized education because i'd I just don't believe, in my particular sport, that you can you can confidently say anything below two percent will affect decision making or performance. Players that drink to first uh, generally have themselves fairly well covered, and and player discomfort during games and and especially GI discomfort during games is is probably an important issue to to factor in as well.
0: Okay, Darren, that sounds like drinking to first is appropriate in football as well. So. Lessons for our listeners across the board of um, issues from uh, injury rehabilitation in the sports medicine team to fascinating discussion of how to monitor training loads and the role of GPS right now. Thanks a lot for your time today and pleasure talking to you, Darren. Absolute
1: pleasure, Karen. Thanks very much.
0: And that was Darren Burgess from Liverpool Football Club and he's hoping that they will be... Serious contenders in the English Premier League this season and lots of trips to Europe for other competitions to challenge their recovery and injury prevention team. You've been listening to this BJSM podcast, and there are many others on the BJSM homepage. You can follow us on Twitter by at BJSM underscore BMJ, and obviously the blog gives regular updates to sports medicine.